we've mentioned here before is Michael Gerber's E-Myth Revisited. He's got a model around entrepreneurship which says the reason why 96% of businesses fail is because of what he calls an entrepreneurial spasm. People start businesses because they can do shit. They can do it well. But doing shit well doesn't mean that you can run a good business. So you're technically very good, but George now has gone from one person and he's a CA and he's running a bookkeeping business, so he knows about books and he can do that well. But now he's in a different phase where he has to manage people. Now, if he ain't good at that, first point of failure in the business. And there's more complexity around this, but that's first point of failure. Now he's doing shit well, but he's not outselling. Then as soon as that dries up, he's in shit again and he's part of the 96% that fail. So there's the technical, the manager, and the entrepreneur, which is the opportunity seeker. What Gerber shows is that if you're not in, in the E level, the entrepreneurial level, at least 30% of the time in the, in the early stages, then you're basically going to fail. Okay, you have to be out there getting new business. And part of the E level, the entrepreneurial level, is the strategic thinking that Kamaran is talking about. Otherwise, you're just going day to day and you're just fulfilling your technical role. So that's piece number one. Second model is around delegation. And the mistake that I see many businesses make is they hear, oh, I need to delegate. I need to be a good manager and I need to delegate. You even might read a book on it and they'll tell you to do that and you want to be really, really good at this. So I'm now going to delegate. But you don't get it right and you actually abdicate, you don't delegate. So the person comes in, they go, all right, welcome Kamaran to Racecorp. This is your role, here's your buddy. Cheers, thanks, uh, and off they go. First of all, I don't select him properly. Second of all, I don't train him. Third of all, he doesn't know what to do. And quite frankly, I, in the early days of Racecorp, we did that quite often. We were just so busy. I remember we had a, a lady from Norway came to work for us, she's a master's student. That's the voice of Alon Ray, CEO of Racecorp, during a deep dive event in Johannesburg, South Africa. During each event, Alon, along with Kumaran, Padiachi and Mark Levy, both seasoned entrepreneurs and business leaders, offer candid but thoughtful, nuanced and experienced-backed insights to help us with day-to-day -day dilemmas that we as entrepreneurs experience. My name is Gareth Armstrong and you're listening to a Razor's Edge podcast. Please go grab a notebook and pen and pause as many times as is necessary during this podcast to capture the insights that resonate with you at this stage of your business's growth and development. In addition to this, go to the Deep Dive Series podcast page on racecorp.com and you will find downloadable models and tools available there. Let's get back into what Alon was saying as he described how he also makes hiring mistakes one of the early ones being just after hiring a highly qualified woman from overseas. God, I thought she would work for us, yeah. And on the day she arrived, I wasn't there because I was out selling and I phoned her in the morning and I said, when you walk in, your desk is like the third one to the right. She just arrived because we were in that hectic stage. So I, I'm speaking to you as a fellow, I've been there. Like we, and so has Kumar, we've been there, we felt that pain. So in the delegation, if you think of a two by two, and on the one on the y axis is things I'm good at, and on the x axis is things I love doing. I'm good at it. So you could be good at stuff, but you don't love it. So if you've got that two by two, and you've got now for the four quadrants, so here is all the things I am bad at and I don't like. That's the first place you go and delegate from. 
And the second place is counterintuitive because people then hold the things that they love. And so they would go to, I love it, but I'm not so good at it. So I'll keep that. Don't do that. Go to, I'm good at it. Hold that. You hold the things that you're good at. And you go to the place that you dedicate what I'm not good at. It's not the love part because you add more value where you're good in that business versus what you love. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about the business. So you've got to be thinking in a two by two is you delegate in where I'm not good and don't like. That's the first place. So if you follow that and you don't abdicate, you delegate, you know you have to get out of technician mode. You've got a better chance of not being part of the 96%. A downloadable PDF of Alon's Hiring 2x2 is available online. And the book you referenced is Michael Gerber's The E-Myth Revisited. During the first event of the series, Alon, Kumaran and Mark focused on business strategy. And it was fascinating to see just how many entrepreneurs in attendance didn't have a long-term vision their current strategy is serving. It's a great conversation and an incredibly worthwhile listen. As you've heard, the second event was all about hiring for growth. And during this podcast, we're honing in on some of the insights shared on the night, which include understanding hiring confidence, hiring too early or hiring too late, consultants versus employees, tech versus employees, and even the firing or dismissal experience. Let's now go back to Alon, who asks us all a fundamental question. I want to take you in a different direction. There's a pre-question that comes before this, is do I want to grow a business? And that's a question, you know, we're talking about hiring, but for, for a lifestyle entrepreneur, hiring might not be the right answer. For a growth entrepreneur, it is the right answer. And, and the way that the entrepreneurship ecosystem is set up in the media around the, the ecosystem, it's created a level of hierarchy that says that a growth entrepreneur is better than a lifestyle entrepreneur is better than a survivalist. And yet, if you look statistically, the irony is that survivalist has the highest survival rate out of all three, followed by the lifestyle, and then the growth entrepreneur is the lowest success rate of the lot. So they should not have a big ego about being a growth entrepreneur. They've got the highest probability of not making it. And why I say this is because when you don't understand who you are as the entrepreneur, you might go into this whole thing about building a business with systems and process, and it's incongruent with you, who you are as, a, as an individual. So the first thing that I do with entrepreneurs is try and ascertain which one they are. If you're a lifestyle entrepreneur, and there, there are very simple ways to, to ascertain this, I'll give those. So if you ever hear yourself saying, if you want to do something properly, you've got to do it yourself. If you ever hear yourself saying that my clients only want to see me, if you ever say to yourself, I'm worried that my staff will steal my IP, if those are the kinds of things that you say in your head, you're a lifestyle entrepreneur. A growth entrepreneur builds systems, legal, contracts, etc. around it. They understand it's part of the journey and they build differently, but they don't have that, I don't want to use the word fear, they might have a respect for me, I have to do the right things to avoid that. But it's not innately how they relate to their business. The pre-question is, am I a growth entrepreneur? Before I go through all this, come here talking about growth, maybe I'm not. And the right strategy for a lifestyle entrepreneur is specialization. That's where you make money if you specialize. It's the GP versus the heart surgeon. The who makes more money in an hour. And that's the right strategy. What an important question. And I love that Alon helps us see and understand that there isn't a wrong answer here. 
just a what is right for me answer. And isn't it amazing how often we let social pressure and the media influence what decisions we make? In this case, it could lead us down a very wrong path. Growth instead of specialization, or vice versa. Okay, let's twist the dials a little. Here's Kumaran sharing insights around timing and confidence when hiring. The first thing is that a sense is you will always get the timing wrong. Always. And you're going to be either too early or you're going to be too late. Too early means you've got three or four people and half the time they're twiddling the thumbs. And uh, too late is when people are strained and steam is coming out the ears. And then, you know, okay, that's a clue. I need to get someone else. So you get it wrong. And I remember it was uh, many years ago, I had a mentor, a professor at uh, Gibbs, a strategy guy from overseas. He was lecturing here. And I asked him, and he also told me he'd get it wrong. And at that time, it was at the world financial crisis in 2010, thereabout. And I remember Toyota, they were building six plants in the U.S. And so when you understand your strategy well, you can forward plan to that distance. And then they got it wrong because this GFC, the great financial crisis happened. And then they had to freeze this thing. And I think Elon Musk was one of the guys that scored the plant for Tesla quite cheaply. And the others, they just abandoned and left it like graveyards. And then they also said, Turd has a philosophy, it doesn't furlough and retrench, never in its whatever, 80 year history. But then it did. So even a company like that can get stuff wrong. So philosophically, you're going to get the timing wrong. You've got to live with that. This is the first thing. The second thing that's a guideline is that if you don't know, you know, there's a saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road is going to do. And so hiring about when should I do it, how should I do it, comes from confidence. And the confidence is never going to be perfect. But the confidence for me is informed by two things. One is your strategy. To the extent you have a strategy, you have some kind of a plan. If you're not thinking strategically about your business and you're living day to day and MacGyvering, then you're going to have no confidence because there's nothing informing it, right? So the strategy allows you to have some kind of a view, medium or long term. And that informs some level of confidence. And that strategy will pivot and change. You're never going to get it right. But that does inform uh, things. And the second is a read to the environment because strategy doesn't exist on its own. You come up with a plan in the environment you're in. And if the environment is shifting, you're going to have to uh, play and adjust your, your plan a little bit, right? And so if you're not reading the environment, then you also can't uh, adjust your strategy and knowing. So though, that's what gives me the confidence knowing when to press it or when not to. But I tend to personally now err on the side of I'll hire a little bit late. When I say late, I'm talking about may hire three months later than what I should, not one year later or something like that. You know, so it's not too much of the end of the world, but I'd rather do that than hire six months earlier. Because this issue we often hear on the show as well is about when should you hire and whatever. It's something they should know themselves, have a better sense themselves. It strikes me that person doesn't really know a strategy or a plan or a vision or a model for, and the levers, there's also an other important thing. We borrow from overseas institutions and local institutions. And we know if we get more supply, we can predict, we can turn on the taps. and So it's important to also have a feel for your levers, that if I pull this, that's going to happen. So if you're out of touch and if you're really not living with your business from a strategy and knowing the drivers, then you're going to be clueless in your own business about hiring. And that's a bigger problem. What a relief to get that burden of perfect execution off our shoulders. And there's that word again, strategy. It's a reminder that our business's activities cannot be separated out. They are interrelated, they are codependent, 
One area's weaknesses impacts another, and this includes hiring. If we want hiring confidence, we need coherence around our vision and strategy. Here are Alon's insights on timing. Let's break this down into what happens if you hire too early and you hire too late. Right? Let's just go through that. If you hire too early, you've got an overhead, often that is unproductive relative to the organization. So you've got overcapacity, and that has a number of unintended consequences. People get bored, they start walking around and interfering with other people, and it actually has a quite a negative knock-on effect of having those. And then the financial people get really, really grumpy when they hire, you hire too early. Hire too late, and then the salespeople get grumpy because there's, then there's no fulfillment. So they get the order, but you can't fulfill the order, and then now you're going to lose the client because you made all these promises, but you can't deliver on it. So you're going to lose the client. So now your salespeople feel despondent because what's the use of me bringing in all this work if you can't fulfill? And so there's that going on. And so you've got this dilemma to, to, you've got to keep this in balance. And it's also more complex in the sense that that is different for, as you say, salespeople and different roles in the business have different, let's call it weightings against those as well. As an entrepreneur, and you all know this, you've got to keep all this going simultaneously. And that's really, really hard. So my view is still overall higher earlier because I believe I can sell. Yeah. Can you think of an example in your career where you've done that and it's been a disaster? Has there been a time in race golf? Yeah, 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 right now. <laughs> um, right now in one of the areas we've hired and the demand didn't come through and the timing is completely out. Look, we've made a plan around it, but we've overcapacity in certain areas. And there's something interesting that happens actually when you underhire and you overhire. When you don't hire on time, what happens over time is you start thinking, well, maybe the structure is a better structure. So you become quite lazy if you're fulfilling a model and you go, that's how it works, and you're just quite robotically trying to fulfill roles. But when you can't fulfill the role, then you're thinking, how else could this happen? And maybe the structure is not right. And maybe we need to interrogate a better way that we could structure this and utilize other resources elsewhere. And so you start to That's kind of necessity is the mother of invention, right? You've got to make a plan so you figure it out. When you overcapacity, the same thing happens. You say, what else can we do with that resource? And so you start finding other quite novel ways to to use that resource. Yeah. Alon, the one thing you said which I thought was fascinating, you you see 400 CVs, you like 15 of them, you hire two of them and you still make mistakes. Do you think that there's a better way of doing that process? It must be. I just don't know what it is, but there must be. That can't be productive. I mean, that's yeah. enormously time-consuming. I've just finished reading Reed Hoffman's Blitzscaling. Yeah. And his whole view is counterintuitive, just hire everyone and, and, teach, they, and teach them and it'll work out. But context is different. You don't have the same labor law in the U.S. as you have here. You mm. don't go and walk into the office and say, you're, you're fired. fired, you know, like in, in The Apprentice. Here, you have to say, Oh, let me, you know, and go through that three steps process. And if you don't, you land up in CCMA. So, so it's all very nice to say that we should follow a blitzscaling approach or a Reed Hoffman, but the context is different. So here, if you hire wrong, not only do you have the consequence of an unproductive human being, but then the process of exiting that individual is equally expensive and painful for everyone involved. That's why my sense is to be more cautious 
but it's not working. So I, I don't know. That's why I came. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So while Kumaran hires a little later, Alon's approach is to hire early and then work hard to ensure the added capacity is filled. The important takeaway here for me is that each business is different, unique and complex. And, borrowing the cooking metaphor used in the first Deep Dive series podcast, we need to combine these insights and ingredients to create the curry that works for us. Let's get a few more of those ingredients on the table. What about using consultants rather than using full-time employees, especially in the South African context where labor laws can be so prohibitive? The hiring formula at its basic level is quite simple. The execution is a little bit more difficult. So what the formula says is if by hiring somebody, you free up your time to create income whose GP is higher than the total cost to company of that individual, then hire. Let us repeat that. If it frees you up to get more income and the, the GP on that revenue is higher than the total cost to company of the person you're hiring, then you hire. I see, once again, who is it freeing up? If it doesn't free up sales capacity, i.e. create more demand, then you're going to be in a washing machine because you're going to be up and down and up and down. In order to jump out of that washing machine, the freedom that a new individual has to create is a demand freedom, a freedom to create more demand. Otherwise, you just, today, you, you need them, you don't. So, but it doesn't create the next level. So consultants are a great stopgap, but aren't necessarily the way to grow your business. What about technology versus employees? Mark has a recent and interesting experience to share here. So in our business, we had a big accounts team, about 26 people in our accounts team. And we kept hiring and I kept kind of having conversations with our CFO who said, we need more people. We, we're just behind the curve the whole time. We, we, we were constantly catching up. The management accounts were late. There were always reasons and it was always around capacity. And then we did an exercise to look at how we were using tech actually. And what we actually found was that, we, in fact, we coined this term in our business, we called busy fools. We've got lots of people in the business, particularly in accounts, in our finance team, that were incredibly busy. And not through any fault of themselves, they were doing work that was completely unproductive. And we did a cost-benefit analysis in our business. We were running Pastel, which is which we, we kind of we had grown up with from when we were one, literally one or two people to a couple of hundred. And it was broken. It wasn't running. It wasn't helping us run an efficient business. And and so actually in the last twelve months we put in an ERP system, which has taken a huge amount of work and pain. Frankly, much more pain than I ever imagined. I don't want to do it again. But our our finance team is now twelve people, and we've redeployed some of those people, and some have left and much more efficient. And it goes down to tech, having the right systems to run the business. So in our business today, we have three priorities and only three priorities. It's the right people and the right jobs. I think if you don't have the right people and the right jobs, you, you, you're dead. It doesn't matter what else you do. The technology to support the business. And that could be in HR, it could be in finance, it could be in ops, it could be across the whole business. We've got to make sure we've got the right systems to support the business and then the right customers. And in our business, and it's not for tonight, but we had a real, it's my personality, we had a real shiny penny problem. We'd jump over there and then we'd see something else and we'd jump over there and this and, and when you need e-commerce in South Africa, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and we said, we're going to find the right customers for us. So those are three priorities in our business today. The one that's had enormous impact, particularly this year we've invested a lot, is around tech. And if you spend time looking at what's available in the world, the consumer side has been interesting of tech and there's lots of cool stuff and we all use our phones and probably all addicted to our phones. But actually where the real innovations happen is in the enterprise space where there are tools, we just put an HR tool in, it costs us $4 per person per month, right? $4, not a lot of money. 
It is incredible in the way that it manages so many of our HR functions. It saved us hiring a person in the business at $4 a person. You know, it's just, I think it's an underutilized view, particularly of entrepreneurs, that there's so much tech in the world. And if you go out and look for it, you can save yourself a huge amount of pain. And actually, when it comes to hiring, you can significantly delay uh, hiring because there is tech tools available to help. And there's a lot. As you were listening carefully, you would have heard Mark make an important distinction. It isn't tech versus employees, or in other words, tech at the expense of employees. It is about using tech to help employees become as productive as possible, then allowing those with additional time to be redeployed into areas they will find most fulfilling to the benefit of the business. Alon also speaks about this in his Blue Heart podcast series. A question then came from the audience about a fear of employing someone and then they have too little to do. Here's Alon's excellent response to that. When you think of work, there's two categories that, that you need to think about. One is doing the work of work, and the other one is building. The one is just doing your job, the thing that you have to do every day, and the other side is building process, building systems, the building of the business. So if you're ever in that state, you've got two places for them to work. Do the job, and if there's extra capacity, build the business. And so technically, in a growing business, small business, you should never have nothing for them to do. It should never be there. Sadly, there are moments in the ebb and flow of business where we do have to let people go. It's an important skill to develop, especially if one is to assist the person who is getting the proverbial axe to leave with their head held high and dignity intact. Here are Kumar and Mark and Alon's thoughts and feelings on the matter. For me, it's not a pleasant experience and no one looks forward to that, then you have some self-doubt. What did I get wrong in hiring this person? Was I too quick to hire? Was I a bit irresponsible in was that? It was it me? All kinds of things. So I think most entrepreneurs will go internal first. I would go internal first and figure out, okay, where's my hand in this? What did I do wrong? What did I miss? And then the next thing is, okay, what can I learn from that to make sure that doesn't happen again? And what I'd never want to do is like overlinger on the decision. Sometimes we end up putting up with some nonsense for too long. That, that I don't advocate doing. But uh, you tend to beat yourself up about it. And if that's where you're going, it's, I think it's normal. Of all the things that I really don't like in the job, letting people go is the worst part of my job. I, I, I take it personally, very, very personally. And, and what I've learned is it's hardest when it's a surprise. And so in our business now, I'd say that it's very, I hope, it's very rare for someone to, to be let go, whatever you term it, and be surprised. And when it's not a surprise, when it's a process that's been managed and clear and open and transparent and, and we've been through multiple conversations, then the process is much, much easier. And actually for me, frankly, the guilt is much less. When it's a surprise, when someone is completely flabbergasted and they never saw it coming, I think that's a leadership problem and a management problem on our side, not on their side. So... So we do a lot in our business, and no one gets perfect, but we do a lot in our business to make sure that by the time a relationship is broken down, for whatever reason, competence or, or strategy or, or we've lost a client, whatever the reason is, that the people that are affected know long in advance that there's a consequence to it. And then it's a much easier process. When it's cold and brutal, I hate it. I, I, it's, it's something I, I frankly avoid, and lots of entrepreneurs avoid it. When it's a process and it's kind of the culmination of a long process, actually it becomes almost mutual in my experience. And actually those conversations tend to be much better and from a kind of leaving point of view, a brand ambassador point of view, a much more positive experience. But it is a hard part of the job without question. 
I've got better at it, but it still hurts. Mark Lamberti said, if you can't change the people, change the people. And we, we asked him a question, what do you regret most? And he said, holding on to people for too long. I held on for too long. And then what happens is it becomes toxic and it becomes a, then everyone's looking for blame. And I think it's different at different levels. So in my senior team, if one of my team leave now without me knowing about it beforehand, I'd be devastated because there's a level of trust and there's a spoken, it's not even an unspoken, there's a spoken contract between us where we say, if you're going to go, put a ribbon on it and let's do it properly and give us both time because, and if we think you need to go, we'll give you time to leave, we'll give you time to find something else so that it's not going to be the shock to either of us because that's at the level, that's who reports into me. And I hope that happens at all levels in our organization, but it doesn't. So sometimes the managers in the business aren't strong enough to have those conversations. They don't like the conflict. They don't communicate well. And then it lands up a stuff up and then you have to go in as the baddie and do the dirty work. So it's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing because it's someone else's life at stake. But um, we had uh, Lee Nike from TransUnion and he's an ex-Accenture and he, he said, at Accenture, we have a conversation about let's make you find success elsewhere. <laughs> you know, and he says that it's true. There is definitely common ground to be found as we have these difficult conversations. And if there isn't, it is our responsibility to step up and bring balance back to our business. To attend a deep dive event, visit racecorp.com where you will find details of all upcoming gatherings along with other interesting insights, podcasts and resources. Alternatively, follow RaceCorp on your favorite social media platform for updates and announcements. There's also some bonus content and other podcasts being released around sales team development. Keep an eye open for that. To take us home, here are Alon, Kumaran and Mark's book and podcast suggestions, along with their final thoughts on this hiring for growth deep dive discussion. What, what do billionaires have in common, right? What's the kind of one criteria across gender, race, market, industry, and the one common thing that every billionaire had was they read a lot. Copious amount, actually. If you, if you may, maybe watch the Bill Gates documentary on Netflix, it's actually fascinating. I mean, he literally consumes books at an astonishing rate. We all read a lot. And maybe just to leave you with some, maybe one thing. Alon, what are you reading at the moment? Come on, and I'll tell you what I'm reading. And the single biggest thing impact on my life and on our, my business has been reading. And we have a book club in the office. A book is so cheap. Books are two, three hundred rand for a book and you can get knowledge that changes your future. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about. So buy books and read them. And, and there's so much content around in the world and so much experience, much better than the experience we've had. And it's content to the people that have the least time. Read them and absolutely. The most money. Dedicate enormous the amounts of their time to read. Spend most time. Some, just think about it. So, so Alon, what are you reading at the moment? So I don't read. I sip. I've read 17 books so far this year, and I read them with a notebook. I write notes in another book, and then I think about what actions do I need to take. And I also listen to Audible as well. That's part of the 17. So it's not reading and listening. It's an audio book. If you read, read with another book to take notes for to, to be a learning experience. I'm finishing off uh, Blitzscaling now with Reid Hoffman, which I found incredibly interesting. But I, I'm challenged to see, first of all, how I can use it and also the context differences that I'm trying to 
sanitize it for a South African context. So what I'm reading is uh, Thinking in Bets. I haven't, I haven't finished that one yet. Annie Duke. It's a lovely concept, Thinking in Bets. And on the hiring, well, I told you already one about the challenger sale, but there's also a book called Top Grading. Mm. Top Grading is a great one by the Smart Brothers, right? Okay. And we were lectured by them in mm-hmm. the US. At MIT. We both studied at MIT. And it's got a whole, it's got forms, it's got the thinking and the philosophy. We use a lot of that and we've kind of contextualized and adapted a bit. I highly recommend that. If you want to do it like really informed decision making around hiring, top grading is the thing to go. Yeah, we've used top grading in our business. To, to me. In fact, every time we stop using top grading, we hire the wrong people and we kind of go back to top grading again and again. Bob Iger, who runs Disney, just wrote a new book, The Ride of a Lifetime, which I'm reading at the moment. And actually, I mean, it's a huge business and an incredible story, but a lot of business advice in it, specifically some stuff around prioritization that I think is really, really interesting. I'm I'm busy with that. The best book I read on hiring, one of the best books I've ever read, which dealt with hiring and firing and a lot of stuff we've spoken about is by a guy named Ben Horowitz, who wrote The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm. Just a brilliant book on it's the opposite of Iger's book. Bob Iger's book is about kind of the beautiful, how amazing the Disney story is and his role in that. And it's, it's really, it's kind of entertainment. But Ben Horowitz, who, who um, now runs a big VC fund in the States called Andreessen Horowitz, wrote a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is dealing with all of these things. How do you fire someone? How do you fire a friend? How do you fire someone who's been with you for 20 years and helped you grow the business? Like really detailed stuff in the business. And actually today, he's, um, he's published a new book, which I'll get this weekend, called what you do is who you are, about building culture in business. The reviews have been outstanding. Just a really raw take in business. And I, I suppose, or the best metaphor I heard for business is business like, it's like flying a helicopter. You're constantly adjusting. You know, you're constantly making sure that you're balancing all these things, whether it's staff or hiring or, or strategy or, or, or finance or all the things that it takes to run a business. And you're constantly kind of making sure that the, that the machine, that the organization is kind of running and, and moving in the direction that you want to run. And it's hard. It's always hard. It doesn't seem to get easier. In fact, in some ways, it gets harder as it, as it grows. But I, I'd say to you, of all the things that I've read, Horowitz is probably the best example of the most real. And He's the most real. real. He's real. It's been another super conversation, and I hope you're feeling as challenged and informed as I am. Remember to keep your eyes on RaceCorp's website and social media accounts for updates on the next Deep Dive event. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and I'll see you there.